Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and a little bit of 8. So I hope you brought lunch and dinner with you. We've got a lot to cover today. Uh, we'll be looking at an overview of uh, what happened in one single long event and just uh, hitting the high points and hopefully giving you some things to study and, and pray about um, in the coming week. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 8, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Ginny is going to read from, for us from home. So Ginny, would you please read? And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, these men never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Thanks, Jenny. Over the last several weeks, we've seen uh, together working our way through this book, Book of Acts, that the Church of Jesus Christ, even from its earliest days, faced numerous hardships. On the one hand, as we saw last week, there were internal difficulties. We, we considered the Greek-speaking widows not receiving their fair share of food in the distribution and the, the potential situation that set up in which the apostles could be drawn away from their primary ministry of preaching the word and prayer. So these were sort of internal problems that the church uh, faced and handled them well. On the other hand, there were external difficulties for the church as well. These difficulties were principally the, the increasing hostility and persecution from other Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And these external difficulties will reach a particularly severe point that we will see today in Acts chapter 7. In our passage that we will be spending the time together that we have this morning, we will see persecution go beyond mere threats, imprisonments, and beatings. These are all things we've seen before. Even though the church is in infancy, it's already faced those kinds of hardships. But now, today, we'll encounter the very first Christian martyr. A martyr is someone who's died for their faith because of their witness. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's, there's a lot to learn from these verses, 
before we get to Stephen's death. Stephen was one of the seven chosen in the passage that we studied last week, the first part of Acts chapter 6. He was one of the seven chosen to take care of the Hellenistic widows on behalf of the church. This was a, a largely administrative service behind the scenes role. And yet, from that passage, we move immediately into the one that Jenny has so helpfully just read for us. In this passage, it's clear that God would work through Stephen in more ways than simply the role he'd been appointed to by the church. Being a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, the Lord's hand was powerfully with Stephen. And this work through Stephen was the occasion for more and more opposition. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the last uh, couple thousand years of church history, that's so often the case, that when the work of God is on the rise, the problems, both internal and external, for the church are also on the rise. These things tend to go together. Now, we saw in the verses that Jenny read that one of the Jerusalem synagogues that was made up of largely Greek-speaking Jews began to argue with Stephen about his theology of Jesus. And so the, the conflict started with belief. It started with words. But when this group couldn't win, they couldn't beat Stephen in a discussion, they resorted to instigating trumped-up charges against him. And they took him to the religious authorities. By verse 12, we find Stephen was brought before the religious leaders on charges that, if proven true, would be grounds for the death penalty. So this was no misdemeanor. This was not even a uh, minor degree felony. No, this was a potentially life-ending case. And so like Peter and John and all the apostles before, Stephen would now meet with the Sanhedrin. The charges brought against him were blasphemy against God's law and against God's temple. These were two of the most important aspects of life in the first century. Now, it's hard for us in this society to have any sense at all of the weight with which people took words. Today, words are cast uh, freely and broadly. Anyone and everyone can share their opinion on anything and can put it out very publicly with almost no sense of legal repercussion at all. We, we prize this freedom of speech that we have, and in many ways, it's a good thing. And yet, in the first century, for a Jew, to speak words of blasphemy or to be accused of speaking words of blasphemy against God, against the temple, against the law, these were extremely serious charges, charges that were worthy, according to the Old Testament, of death. Now, what follows in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, if you'll sort of let your eyes glance all the way through Acts chapter 7, verse 53, is Stephen's response. This is a long section of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the triumph of God's word. And 
As such, it contains many, many speeches or sermons. And Stephen's, interestingly enough, is the longest. Stephen's is the longest of all the sermons in the book of Acts. Perhaps you've read, uh, brothers and sisters, Acts chapter 7 previously. Uh, if you haven't, don't, don't worry about it. This is a great place to start. But if you've read it before, maybe you'll remember that on first reading, Stephen's speech seems to meander aimlessly. He seems to just kind of wander around, probably like you feel like some of my sermons do. <laughs> it's, it's tempting to wonder if Stephen thought that he could just bore the Sanhedrin to death. Maybe like a teenager trying to wear out a parent with many words that seemed to not be connected to the charge brought against him or her. Stephen had a lot to say. But as we'll see this morning, the vehement response of the Sanhedrin shows they weren't bored at all. They understood his point loud and clear. Far, you see, from being pointless blabbering, Stephen's sermon is an intricate and brilliantly woven together recounting of the Old Testament. Now, it's true that it's not a, a direct defense per se. In other words, Stephen doesn't say, you brought this charge against me and I'll tell you exactly point by point why you're wrong. That's not, that's not exactly what he does. It's more offense than defense. The accusations against the accuser get turned on their head because he becomes the accuser. The accused becomes the accuser. Now, the key to understanding Stephen's long speech is to keep in your mind the charges that were brought against him. Remember, there were two. He was accused of blasphemy against God's law, and he was accused of blasphemy against God's temple. And in response, he goes on to recount from the Old Testament what the law and the presence of God were all about in the first place. He seeks not to defend and to protect himself. Rather, he seeks in love to correct his accusers. You see, far from dishonoring God, Stephen's teaching rightly sets Jesus as the one that the Old Testament was always anticipating. Friend, if you are uh, watching the live stream today and you're new to Christianity, thanks for taking some of your time to participate. And if you're still learning the basic message of the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of your Bible, well, Acts chapter 7 is a really great place to start because you're getting an overview of what that Old Testament was all about from the very beginning. If you've been a Christian a while and you have found yourself confused with the Old Testament, then Acts chapter 7 makes a place in the scriptures for excellent study. We certainly can't exhaust it today. There's simply too many verses. So I want to encourage you to call up a friend or a church member and spend some more time later in the week reading together Stephen's sermon in more detail and prayerfully seeking to understand it beyond what we'll be able to get to today. But as you look at 
verse 2 and following. What you'll see is that Stephen's sermon is not only the longest of all the sermons in Acts, it is also the most unusual. You see, instead of sort of reading a verse and then explaining what it means, or explaining something and then reading the verse, that's what Peter often did. That's what Paul will often do. No, Stephen approaches the task differently. It's still an accurate recounting of the Bible, to be sure, but it's, it's more a summary. It's more biblical theology. It's more weaving and fitting together the pieces and showing how they lock into place, referencing all different portions of the scriptures than it is actual quotations and even allusions. That's part of what, what, what makes um, Acts chapter 7 difficult to interpret. Now, rather than reading it in its entirety, I want to try to give you the sense of what it means and hopefully set you on the right track in order, again, to spend more time in it. If we were going to boil all of Stephen's sermon down to one big idea, then his sermon is clearly meant to communicate this to his accusers. You, not me. You, not me, have dishonored God's law and dishonored God's temple. That's what he told the Sanhedrin. It's an incredibly brave thing for him to do. Now, how Stephen goes about making that point is fascinating. And that's where this becomes so helpful to us today, seeking to understand what it means to follow Jesus and live for him. Stephen had a tremendous handle, if you will, on his Bible. May, may a, just a little bit of learning from him for us today inspire us to try to learn our Bibles better. Now, remember the charges against him. Hopefully I've said them enough times this morning, they're starting to stand out. Blasphemy against God's law and blasphemy against God's temple. Stephen indirectly refutes these charges by saying the, the law and the temple were always pointing ahead to Jesus. And this Jesus they had killed. The religious leaders of Israel had rejected Jesus, which was tragic because Jesus came as the ultimate rescuer. But this rejection is not surprising. It's exactly what one would expect if you looked at Israel's history. And brothers and sisters, today, the rejection of Jesus Christ by many ought not surprise us. It's exactly what Old Testament Israel did and what New Testament Israel in many ways did. Overall, Stephen took up these two issues, law and temple, but he moves to overlap these themes in and out fluidly in order to help us understand who Jesus is. This is one of those sermons you can go back to again and again and again, and you'll continue to draw more and more insight into Jesus Christ. Look, for example, with me at how he begins. Just look in your copy of the scriptures at verse 2. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, calling God the God of glory and then adding a little bit of detail about where Abraham was are significant contributions to what Genesis itself tells us about the original event. Stephen's point is, is this in just that one verse. God initiated his plan of salvation. Abraham wasn't off looking for him. He wasn't already a follower. He wasn't living obediently. He didn't somehow merit God's intervention in his life. No, all of this started with God. God was the first mover. God made his way to Abraham, revealed his presence to him long, long ago, long before, importantly, long before Abraham or anyone else among the people of God were in the land of Israel, long before they had the law, long before they were in the temple. These friends in the first century were the things that the Sanhedrin held most dear. And by implication, most every Jew held most dear, being in the land, having the law, and being the people who had the temple. These had become great sources of pride, ethnocentrism, and arrogance. They became the place upon whom and the people upon whom hope was set. Law, presence of God, and land. But that's not what this was all about. It's never what it was all about. And so he tells us something of how that was true of Abraham. Abraham had the presence of God in his life before he was ever in the land, before he ever had the law, and before there was ever a physical temple. From there, Stephen continues this same line of thought, but brings up another person. If you jump down in your Bible to verse 9, you'll see another great hero of the Old Testament, somebody named Joseph. And it says in verse 9 that God was with him. Now, those of you who like geography, there's one in my family. There's another who's not so much. You can um, guess who's who. But down in verse 9, it says that God was with him, with Joseph. And notice where he was. He was in Egypt, not in the land of Israel. Again, the point being made is that God's presence with his people is not about geography. It's not about being in the land and being in the temple. Another connection point that Stephen goes on to make is that Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Joseph, friends you may remember, was the youngest brother. He went out to check on his brothers. They were jealous of the relationship that he had with the father. And so they threw him in a pit, pretended that he died, and then sold him into slavery. Parents, as we enter a summer of COVID, you may feel trembling as you hear that story. Kids locked up may resort to these kinds of things. Let's hope not, right? Now, that rejection was ultimately part of God's plan to rescue his people from certain disaster. Because Joseph, being faithful to God, even in extreme circumstances, was taken to Egypt and would become a central figure there. 
This, of course, helps us to think about Jesus. One day, one would come who would experience rejection from his people in a far more profound way and who would rescue them, not from a mere famine in Israel, but from eternity apart from God. You see, Joseph was, a, in a little tiny way, a representation of what would come in Jesus Christ. Now, after Joseph, Stephen goes on to tell us that the people of Israel were increasing and multiplying. This is a key phrase in the Bible. That as Israel was increasing and multiplying in Egypt, just like now in Acts chapter 6 and 7, Israel was increase. I mean, the, the church was increasing and multiplying. Then the Egyptian leaders rose up against them, just like the Israeli leaders, the Sanhedrin, rose up against God's new people, the church. And it was in that time frame that God raised up Moses. So here's another key figure from the Old Testament. And Stephen spent the most uh, space, if you will, in his sermon on Moses. Why? Well, Moses is perhaps the central figure from the Old Testament. And Moses is the leader through whom the law came. Moses is so intricately tied to the law given by God. Now, Stephen carefully weaves together throughout multiple paragraphs in precise, amazing detail who Moses is and what the law functioned to do. If you look at the paragraph starting in verse 17, 17 all the way down to 43, then what you'll find in consecutive sections is that in an organizational principle of 40 years, so it refers to the first 40 years in Moses' life, then the next 40 years, and then the final 40 years. That's how we come to learn in Stephen's sermon the ultimate purpose of the law. By, understand, by not understanding that the law was meant in the Old Testament to reveal people's sinfulness and to drive them to the mercy of God, to find the sacrifice cleansing them through the mercy and forgiveness of God. And that's what brought them into relationship and kept them in relationship with God by completely missing that, that God alone can save. Then Israel had missed one of the main purposes of the law. The purpose meaning to drive me to see my sin and then in the awareness of that sin to be driven to the mercy of God. They had missed that. They were still missing that, even as Stephen was talking to them. The law, you see, friends, was like a signpost pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin, though, like so many before them, found themselves staring at the post, paying no attention to the sign. The law pointed to and is fulfilled in Jesus. Like your ancestors, Stephen argues, you've refused to obey the law and see that you need salvation in Christ. And so just like those who have come before you, your ancestors, you've rejected God. God was with his true people 
brothers and sisters, all over the ancient world. It was never about their perfect obedience to the law or their ease in the land. It was always about God acting on their behalf. God bringing them salvation. Now, church, I fully recognize this may seem very old, archaic, and removed from us circumstantially. It may seem like unnecessary details, like just get to the good part where Jesus dies and rises again. But friends, we understand the significance of what Jesus did far better if we understand the backstory. God had been about a plan to bring salvation for a long, long time. The history of the people of God is dominated not even by these characters and not certainly by the law or the land or the temple, not by the greatness of God's people. Now, the history of God's work among God's people has always been about God. And these leaders missed that. By by application, just a brief word, church, that can happen today. We can find ourselves making church about us. We can find making ourselves the central character. We can find our own sense of obedience being what's driving how we feel about how we're doing with God. And this passage reminds us in a most serious way, not in an an easy to understand way, because you got to do this work of understanding how the passage is laid out, but in a most serious way, that the history of God is about God, that God's about God, that God being for God is good, because God being for God has meant that God has pursued us ultimately for his glory given to us in Jesus Christ. A man-centered God is not a God worth following. A God-centered God ultimately leads to a God of mercy, of grace, of kindness. Church O'Mill, we want a big God because that's the only God that exists. And that's the only God that ultimately will be one who showers down mercy upon us. The Sanhedrin had lost sight of this God because they were impressed with themselves. As they read their Old Testament through the lens of their own sense of greatness and obedience, they were missing not only the point in the Old Testament, they were missing the point right before them. Stephen's purpose, of course, in sharing all of this was to invite them to repentance. Now, if you look down in verses 44 to 50, then you'll see that finally, at this point in the sermon, Stephen moves from the law to the temple. He moves from the law to the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was the physical location on earth where God chose to reveal his presence the most powerfully and consistently. But, of course, God can't be confined to a building. And A building is not some guarantee or place in which you can manipulate God. God's not limited to one geographical location. God's not like us. He can be in more than one place at one 
time. I thought growing up, my mom had that ability too. Mom, if you're watching, I don't know how you saw all those things I did. That's amazing. But really, it's only God that can be all places at all times. And yes, revealing himself more significantly in one place than another. In fact, the physical temple in Jerusalem was always about something spiritual. It was about God meeting with his people. And that ultimately happens in Jesus Christ. Just like the Sanhedrin's ancestors had rejected the prophets who spoke to them about God, the Sanhedrin was now rejecting Stephen, who spoke about God. And even more importantly, they were rejecting Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of God. Friend, it is a most serious error to reject Jesus Christ. It is a most serious, grave, fatal, eternal error to turn from God's grace held out and offered through Jesus Christ. God has always been acting on behalf of and present among his people. He's not confined to a building. And even when he did reveal himself most powerfully in history in the temple, that temple was always temporary. Jesus, you see, is present today, not merely in some building in a city, but inside every believer in Jesus Christ. Friend, that's why it's so serious to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject any and every hope of having an experience with God that involves a closeness, a kindness, a graciousness, a forgiveness. It's to guarantee the only experience of the presence of God you will ever have is one of judgment. You can't have God and toss Jesus aside because Jesus is our mediator, our savior, our Lord. He's the one who died that we might live. By trying to protect the building of the temple, the Sanhedrin was actually pushing away the ultimate presence of God in Christ. What a mistake. Now, two observations at this point as we think about applying Stephen's message. And we've just hit the high points. But two observations by way of application for us. First, I'd love to say just a few words to the non-Christian. Friend, don't miss the forest for the trees. Or um, I was trying to come up with on the fly a desert analogy. Um, don't, don't miss the, the dirt for the rocks. <laughs> Maybe that's closer. You may not know any of the people I've just spoken about. Maybe you've heard of uh, Moses or Abraham or Joseph, but, but don't know their backstories. Well, I'd say to you this morning, you can learn. But for our purposes today, you don't have to know all the details about all these people to understand the point Stephen's making. 
His point is that Jesus is the centerpiece of God's work to save people. All of those things in the Old Testament were about Jesus. All of these things in the New Testament are about Jesus. Everything today that is needed in order to be made right with God is about Jesus. And so if you reject him, you reject the only means of being in a right, welcoming relationship with God. You're watching today, and for that, we're deeply thankful. But we as a church want to encourage you to move from spectator to participant. How? By by responding to God in Christ. I want to invite you to consider both the rightful claim God has as your creator and your tremendous failure to obey him. It's a failure we all share. It's a failure every human being shares. This failure to obey the creator has caused a rift in your relationship with God. The very relationship you were born to enjoy. But God came in Jesus Christ to resolve the hostility between you and your creator. Jesus came to fulfill the law that you couldn't in order to bring about the opportunity to be in the presence of God in everyday life through Jesus' sacrifice. Friend, if you will this morning turn from sin and place faith in Jesus who died, rose again, and now ascended where he rules and reigns from heaven, then you too can have the presence of God. Not when you are able to walk back in this church building, but in your own life, in your own body. God will take up residence within, and it'll be permanent. Now, to the Christian, The second point of application I'd love to make is imagine growing in your understanding of the Bible such that you can relate to the ever-changing circumstances we are now in. You can relate them on the fly going throughout your day to the never-changing truth of who God is and what he's done. I want to encourage you to give yourself to the word in order that you would see Jesus more clearly. Because it's, it's when we come to grasp Jesus more tightly, where we see how the whole Bible fits together, that we'll be more and more likely to understand and appreciate and enjoy and worship Jesus throughout our daily lives. It's always been, it always will be, all about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you are united to Christ, and that is enough. You have all that you need today in Jesus Christ. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the temple, these were all great people, all powerful things to have seen in person. But Jesus is better in these COVID days. Even as uncertainty is seeming to rise, as one state does one thing and another does another, as one governmental official prioritizes one thing and another another, as one business opens and another stays closed. Friends, it, it feels like it's every person for themselves right now. But in these days of uncertainty, we have all the resources we need in Christ, in Christ, the treasures of heaven, namely, a right relationship with and the presence of God 
are given to us in Christ. We have what we need, brothers and sisters. Now, how did the Sanhedrin respond? This was quite a speech given to them by Stephen. As you might anticipate, they did not respond favorably. Look with me, if you would, please, at verse 44, 54. Acts 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, that's Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Very likely, brothers and sisters, Stephen's sermon got interrupted. Who, who knows how long this guy may have gone? The Sanhedrin was enraged at what he said, and they probably interrupted him just as he was getting to the gold. While the Jewish leaders were overrun with sinful anger, Stephen was looking up into heaven. And Stephen had a very unusual experience. In a miraculous moment, it's as though the curtains of the heavens were open and Stephen could look in on the throne room and see that while the Sanhedrin was rejecting him, God was not. What an experience that must have been. And what a sight he saw. Now you may have noticed in verse 55 and 56, there is an emphasis on Stephen seeing Jesus standing. It comes up multiple times. This is far more than a passing detail. Now, you've hung with me a long time. Give me just a moment longer. What's the big deal with Jesus standing? Well, church, normally in the New Testament, after Jesus' ascension, his return to heaven, and before his return, normally the point of emphasis in our New Testament about Jesus' posture, and yes, that does come up, kind of weird. Normally, the depiction of what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is seated. In fact, I didn't read through the whole Old Testament, last New Testament to make sure, but I think, as far as I can remember, this is the only place in the New Testament where between Jesus' ascension and his return, there's any depiction of him standing up. I think this is the only time. Jesus is seated normally, and he's seated because his work is finished. You see, as our high priest, Jesus sat down because no sacrifice for sin will ever be needed again. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. 
And he's also seated next to the Father because he's seated in the place of highest honor and power. And he's, he's seated from the throne where he's running and ruling over all things. He's the king over his kingdom. But as Stephen looked up into heaven, he saw Jesus standing. Why? Why is he standing? Well, it wasn't because his back got stiff. It wasn't because he just needed a stretch. No, he's standing because he's bursting with love for Stephen. He's standing with arms open wide. He's standing because this is the very first person after Jesus himself who would die on account of the gospel. This is a critical moment in the church's history. He's standing because as Stephen is being rejected, as he's being pummeled with rock after rock after rock, friends, imagine dying from getting hit with rocks. It's absolutely horrible. As Stephen received blow after blow, the rejection from his people sinking in deeper and deeper, even pummeling his body. In God's grace, he looked up to see the heavens open and the Lord Jesus Christ himself standing up to receive him with open arms. What a picture of God's love. The Sanhedrin rejected Jesus. The Sanhedrin rejected Stephen. But God didn't. Jesus didn't. Jesus welcomed him standing with open arms. Brothers and sisters, however you may die, be it far from now, or be it very close, be it cancer in 20 years, or COVID-19 in a week. However you die, you will be welcomed into heaven with open arms because of Jesus and by Jesus. What a picture. Let's pray. Father, as our awareness of our mortality is high right now, as so many tens of thousands of Americans have died in recent weeks. As indicators of the seriousness and the brevity of life, Father, may we all consider where we are with you. I pray for those who don't know you that they would not make the mistake the Sanhedrin made of rejecting Jesus Christ, the only offer and yet the fully sufficient offer of salvation. God, I pray for people who don't know you that even now you would help them to understand who you are and to respond to you in Christ. And Lord, I pray for my fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters 
Lord, even now as I pray, would you fill them with renewed hope and confidence that Jesus' arms are open wide, that they will not be rejected by God, that heaven is their future, and that you love them so, not because of the law or the temple, but because of Jesus. Help us feel this in our bones. In Jesus' name.